Hello, welcome to Taking the Universe Around the World. I'm Robin Ince and these are my show diaries or tour diaries of going across the world with Professor Brian Cox taking the Horizons tour, which is predominantly about black holes with obviously some interventions from me. There's uh, approximately four equations. Brian is now doing them as equation solos. In fact, Last night we went to see orchestral manoeuvres in the dark and the crowd were absolutely ecstatic and uh, they got an encore and Brian said, oh, why don't we get something like that? And I said, well, the trouble is that a lot of his equations aren't yet kind of sing-along equations, but I think that's something that's going to develop throughout the tour. Maybe not for the first leg of the US tour, but certainly, hopefully, by the time we get to uh, Singapore or Dunedin. Anyway, today we start in Ottawa, which is a fantastic gig. Met lots of lovely people there. Had a fantastic time at Barely Brews Books, as you will know if you listened to the previous episode. And by this point, we are on the tour bus. So we get straight out of the venue, straight onto the tour bus, and we start travelling to Montreal. Now, on this night, Brian is very keen for us to watch Severance, which is one of his favourite TV shows from the last year. And so he starts trying to work out what needs to plug into what and what must be downloaded and uploaded to ensure that this televisual joy is possible. While doing this, he manages to spill his fizzy Chardonnay on his show trousers. Now, of course, anyone listening to this would know that whenever dealing with technology and fizzy Chardonnay, you should always get out of your show trousers first. But... Well, he was engaging with technological quandaries and Brian had never seen that particular late-night public information film. Remember, when dealing with technological quandaries and drinking fizzy Chardonnay, don't wear your show trousers. Good night and sleep well. That's the end of the BBC. Now, here's the National Anthem. Anyway, if there is the vague fragrance of rancid grapes wafting over the stalls of the Montreal Auditorium, hopefully the people were aware that it was him and not me, because obviously I have more of a look of a kind of uh, a hobo who's going to have wine on his trousers. I've actually more often than not got the usual odour that I have of 19th century bookbinding glue. Eventually, I applaud Brian's ingenuity, and he manages to conjure severance to life, at least for the first 30 or so minutes of episode one. By the time we arrive in Montreal, just after midnight, we slump, having not quite got to the end of episode one. My habit of waking up throughout the night is not quite dispelled by melatonin, but it's getting better. Whenever I used to arrive in a new room in a new city, I would always just put the television on to get some kind of gist of the culture. But now it just seems that the dominance of the 24-hour news culture makes it an absolute waste of my time and also deeply depressing. This is a kind of shoddy, civilization-threatening entertainment cycle that pretends to actually be information. Anyway, I fall asleep eventually, wake up at 4am, 7am, and then breakfast at about 8.30am. Today, Brian will only text message in French. Brian starts the day with eggs in a rich sauce, as usual, and I eat blackberries and brush croissant crumbs off my cardigan. Why am I so messy? I've never understood this. At school, I was banned from using an ink pen because I would just leave this kind of Jackson Pollock quality of splodges over every essay I attempted. 
My shirt tails always untuck and I naturally crumple anything that is placed on me. Brian will sometimes say, why don't you spend lots more money on a, a really lovely suit? And I try to explain that there is some kind of field that has not yet been discovered by physics, which allows me to emanate the crumpling and creasing of well but basically I, I i emanate crumpling creasiness so there we go we'll one day find out the law of crumpling creasiness because it afflicts everything that gets near me except obviously brian who hasn't crumpled and creased maybe he just keeps the right distance i suppose in the end i am what is needed for the balance of the universe if brian cox is to remain pristine something else needs to just move towards entropy at an incredible speed i uh, i am disorder in fact, I wrote a poem about being disorder a while ago, which I think I nearly ended up in one of the shows that I did with Brian, but um, I will give you the general gist of it. I am disorder, your entropy. We're a phase of the heat death of the universe made of what can seem eternal, though it is almost definitely finite when it's gathered up as us. I'm up quarks and down quarks, Am I charm quarks and strange quarks? Well, I'm definitely strange. Leptons and electrons, muons and gluons, they were all together once, compact, rubbing shoulder to shoulder, but before shoulders, or thoughts, waiting for gravity, matter and time. We were potential and probability, and maybe with a destiny. Now we're oxygen and sodium, phosphorus and calcium, hydrogen and nitrogen, and a little bit of uranium, assembled by law and equation, but seemingly not outside instruction, though some might suggest an Elon Musk simulation. Here we are, a periodic menagerie, a particle zoo, a bacterial multitude, all waiting for a heat death, but currently preoccupied with being alive. Well... At least I think I am. Anyway, that was that. And uh, I suppose that's really what then led to uh, the uh, hopefully better poem that uh, is in the current Horizons tour. Homeland deadlines are easily forgotten when there's notion between you and them. So I suddenly realised that I hastily have to write my column for the big issue. Fortunately, it's one on one of my favourite subjects, Hull. I love the end of the line city and its ability to be kind of matter of fact with the marvellous. It's a very underrated city. I love Philip Larkin. I love the stories of Mick Ronson, where uh, in, in, in fact it's in Cosi Fanny Tutis, but again, another person who is both in, incredibly innovative, iconic, and inventive, but her manner is. Uh, just yeah, it's, I remember my friend Marion Pashley. She would often talk. She's from Hull, and she would talk about Hull's slogan. And Hull's slogan was, "It's never dull in Hull." And uh, Marion, being another example actually of that fantastic kind of Hull delivery. But in Cosi Fanny Tutti's book, she talks about um, where there was a, a gardener who would uh, do a lot of the communal lawns, and they would see this kind of Adonis with his lawnmower cutting the grass topless and everyone would like oh wow who's that amazing guy and it was it was Mick Ronson and uh, again I would highly recommend if you've never seen the footage go and have a look at Mick Ronson talking about writing the Ziggy Stardust album just sat in a very very clearly cold Hammersmith Apollo just there in the stalls 
just again, just you know, and then I just suddenly uh, just came up with this riff, and then boom, there we go, just this utter beauty. I, I think he's watching him talk about playing guitar is quite similar to watching someone like Johnny Marr as well. Just an an, an incredible uh, beauty in that. And uh, you just plug the guitar in and turn it up, you know, and it's uh, and away you go, you know, like things like uh, Gene Genie, uh, Ziggy Stardust, Gene Genie. I remember recorded Gene Genie in Nashville, Tennessee. And we only had this little tiny, we had these little tiny amps, that's all we, we had with us, it was like little practice amps, you know, but we kind of just went in and plugged in and turned it up and off we went. I think we recorded Gene Genie in two takes, you know. We kind of did it once and messed up and then we just did it again. We never played the song before. Uh, and that was basically it. I mean, you plug it in and you turn it up and away you went, you know, so. There you go, classic Gene Genie riff. Comes from basically the... Muddy Waters, are they? And a man, John Lee Hooker. And that kind of riff, you know. It's very simple, very simply done, you know. So, Brian stays in his Montreal hotel room writing about black holes and entanglement again. And I stay in my Montreal hotel room writing about Hull. Here's a little excerpt of the piece that I wrote for the big issue and uh, obviously I think this you can you can find this particular one online but by the big issue it's wonderful and uh, I have an absolute joy uh, writing for it it's it's always a delight writing for the big issue I love Hull I have an affection for places that are the end of the line I love seeing the Humber Bridge as we approach the terminus and I hear Philip Larkin's poem of place here Though my visual imagination used to have Philip Larkin and the knitwear of the House Martins, the self-proclaimed fourth best band in Hull, at the forefront, a new image usurped that after reading musical pioneer Cosi Fanny memoir, Art, Sex, Music. She has, like so many I've met from Hull, a beautiful understatement of the remarkable in her work. I'm near the end of my tour now, just a few days to go, which is why I drank one more pint than usual the night before. It's Monday morning, and J.E. Books is the smallest bookshop on my tour. It is situated in one of those old shopping arcades that reminds you of when a high street had shops owned by many, many people, rather than dominated by two or three corporations, which are all probably ultimately owned by one big American hedge fund company. There's no element of surprise in those generic stores. But this arcade is a place of potential delights in every corner, whether you're looking for sound equipment or a whoopee cushion. That's obviously from Dinsdale's Joke Shop. We sell laughter. Keep smiling. Julie, who owns the bookshop, is just the sort of person you want to meet when you're doing a Monday morning 11am book signing with a slightly blurry head. She's a boolean. She's worked in a bookmakers, the civil service, taught English at the University of Hull and has a PhD in the novels of Jeanette Winterson. Like all other booksellers I've met, she always knew her ultimate destiny was to have a bookshop of her own. Anyway, that's a little bit of that particular piece that I wrote for The Big Issue. Let's get back to... Well, we weren't in Hull at all, were we? We were in, uh, in, in Montreal. Now, due to the inability to deal with all of the questions about the universe in the 10 minutes allotted to the Q&A in the Horizon show, Brian and I have decided to record a podcast to deal with some of the unanswered questions. We record episode one in his hotel room and deal with the Schwarzschild radius, complex life and alien visitations. After that he explains the happy holographic pentagon 
code and the casual wedge puzzle. I am not going to attempt to do that myself now, as well also as the redundant coding of space-time. It seems I might be the redundant coding of space-time, and so might you, and that does make a lot of sense. Throughout this tour, I'm reminded of the physicist John Wheeler's description of the evolution of physics during his career. First it was particles, then it was fields, now it's information. It's nice when you can, every now and again, just think about what was physics. Oh, of course, all this used to be fields. After finishing the podcast, Brian and I walked down to the water, and I delight in seeing one of my favourite pieces of architecture, Habitat 67. I was fortunate to meet and listen to the architect Moshi Safdie when hosting one of Chris Hadfield's generator shows in Toronto. Safdie spoke of the importance of immersing himself in the culture of whatever location he was working in, including surrounding himself with the music of that place. I adore Habitat 67. It feels like a mythical piece of brutalism that has somehow come to exist in the real world. As we walk along the water, Brian explains how you can sail from Montreal to Duluth via the lakes, and then we look at the fun fair and its Coney Island roller coasters across the water. Which reminds me, the one time I went to Coney Island was after the big opening weekend, and what no one tells you is that after the big opening weekend, they close it again. So it meant that I didn't see, and this was the thing I was highly looking forward to, the Vietnamese man-sized rat, more feared than a sniper's bullet. On my way back to the hotel, Brian is tempted by a camera shop. He'll capture your soul any way he can. He covets lenses while I look at a book of Martin Parr's photographs of Hebden Bridge in 1975. Back at the hotel, I record the first diary entries with asides for a podcast taking the universe around the world. Look, you see, now we're kind of here, aren't we? And I go on to say that that should be available in the next day or so, but actually that is now in the past, or the present, or the future. Oh, something, 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 block universe. Anyway, I think about a little sleep in the afternoon. But thinking is the problem, and as I lie under the sheets, my brain keeps burbling on in its jittery manner. The Montreal audience give Brian the loudest walk-on cheer yet. This is our first time here, and again, it's a sellout. There's a lot of room to play tonight, but we still work hard to make sure it doesn't go too much over time. Audience questions tonight include, if there are stars around black holes, could these stars have solar systems with eternal life forms stuck in the event horizon? And do you think that humanity made the right choice between digital computing and analogue computing? It ends with a standing ovation, which is the second night in a row. Brian always finds taking about a bit embarrassing, but I notice he's a lot more comfortable if everyone stands. So I sit at the side of the stage waiting for my cue for just a little bit longer. They're a wonderful audience, and we leave the theatre happy. Over drinks, we discuss great actors' techniques for getting standing ovations. Apparently, during his King Lear, Sir Robert Stevens' trick was to delay coming on for his bow as long as possible until the audience presumed that it might be an artistic gesture for his Lear. So the rest of the cast would come on and the audience would applaud and applaud and applaud, and then still no Robert Stevens and the house lights would just begin to go up, and as the house lights went up, people thought, oh, okay, then well, that's that, and they would stand up to leave. At this point, Robert Stevens would take to the stage, and the audience, now trapped standing, would applaud. He would walk off stage and say, see, Peter, another standing ovation. I finished reading about the Amur Maple, or Amur Maple, I'm not sure which, in the Montreal book of my international reading challenge, Bromwin Chester's Island of Trees. 
and then I sleep to 4am. Waking up in Montreal, I yet again fail to take my own advice. I often spend time telling people not to start the day with social media. Start the day by looking into a book, by looking at the sky, by staring at a painting, just by looking at the back of your hand and contemplating the genetics that have led to the shape of your fingernails. Don't look at the social media pages because you will immediately find so much of that monetized disdain and hate and you'll be dragged into the opinions that are in newspapers that you would have otherwise never read and so here I am in Montreal an ocean away from England and suddenly I'm just furious at the pathetic and devious nature of the British press and it just appears even more grotesque a kind of level of grotesquery that even Francis Bacon couldn't do justice to with all of the monstrosities that he managed to conjure up in his mind and It just becomes very depressing to see that desire to regress, to please the most backward-looking and and bigoted people, to spray us with this kind of fetid trough water of populism. And it seems to stink even more from a distance. And like Brian with Flat Earthers, I try to understand it from an angle of reason, but then I realise there isn't... Well, the angle of reason is, of course, things like non-domicile tax statuses and preserving uh, power in the hands of a smaller and as rich a number of people as possible. Um, So I always forget that their morality is in a perpetual superposition. Uh, But I don't need to say any more about this now. It's uh, I'll drag you down into into that mire. But that was how I started the day in Montreal and... uh, it, it's it's strange, isn't it? Because in in the USA and Canada, they seem to have a predominantly more reasonable press, but they seem to be far less influential newspapers in terms of actually steering the agenda of each day. Instead, of course, it's the Fox-style news that relentlessly threatens people with a culture war that won't make a blind bit of difference to their life, but nevertheless will manipulate them into voting for a party that will then do nothing whatsoever to to aid their actual existence. Um, Poverty is not going to be extinguished by dispensing with women's abortion rights or demonising trans people. Um, This hypocrisy is so overt, it's hard to believe that it manages to persuade people but of course it's also it's a very very it's 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 so noisy there is so much noise and i find it i find it just disorientating and so disappointing to see so many high profile podcasters some of whom i'd previously respected or, or bought the books of and they give multiple platforms to those who consider the snowflake generation a far greater threat than the actual cancelling of human rights It's not a surprise to see that some of those that squeal loudest about cancel culture are also pro-cancelling women's rights to abortion. Um, They're only concerned about anything that has even the slightest potential to curb the dissemination of their misogyny, their racism, their homophobia or their transphobia. Anyway... There we go. That's the beginning of uh, my my morning in Montreal, an, an erratic uh, selection of thoughts, um, and uh, it's it's like looking at a lot of a lot of the comedy that that's described as edgy comedy, and, and what I always find disappointing by it is that that one it seems to bolster what is already a very mainstream opinion being used by uh, quite often the right and the far right, and. Uh, 
and secondly, yeah, it's 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 all dehumanising. And my favourite kind of comedy has within it somewhere has has a wonderful humanising potential rather than turning everyone who is already one of the the the, the bullied or the marginalised into even more of a pariah. And I've and in 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 Montreal this morning, I was reading an article about the online bullying of a teenage actor in the new Doctor Strange movie, and uh, and it was aptly summed up. I think this article was in in the, the Onion AV Club or something like that. Anyway, because we live in a sick, cruel, and discriminatory society where personal freedom really only matters if it's illogically thrown around as a bad faith talking point, which I thought was a good point. All those podcasters that I used to think had a reasonably steady state of mind seem so eager to admiringly talk to people who barely veil their polite white supremacy. And watching the possibility that Roe versus Wade will be overturned is deeply disturbing. So, though I started off with the grotesquerie of the British press, the grotesquerie is, of course, spread across the lands. Fred Gutenberg's daughter Jamie was murdered in the Parkland shooting. And he tweeted this morning, Please note, abortions are being banned before assault rifles. It's not about the sanctity of life. It's about control and it's about power. And also this morning, and the art side of things, when I said look at a painting, well, I did look at a painting as well as looking at social media. I looked at the work of uh, Paul Arago, who is an artist that I admire hugely. And uh, all of the anti-abortion things that I've been reading today remind me of her incredibly powerful paintings of women having to resort to illegal abortions and the Prime Minister of Portugal believed that it was a touring exhibition of these works by Rago that actually helped lead to the change of both opinion and law in his own country. Well, that was all. That was a, that was a bleak start to the day in uh, in in Montreal. I hope I haven't dragged you down too much. I will uh, at least resort to Kurt Vonnegut. I'm hugely looking forward to going to Indianapolis, uh, where I'm going to go to the library and museum that is dedicated to his memory. But always in the back of my mind, you have to have his words from "God bless you, Mr. Rosewater." His advice to all of the babies of the world that might live to be a hundred years old. The one thing they must know is god damn it you've got to be kind anyway today is a tour bus day seven hours on the road from montreal to two sold out gigs in toronto starts off with pretty rickety country roads so we take the first hour take four starts off with rickety country roads so for the first hour or so it makes reading an impossibility So I still spend too long on social media. I really should have escaped. And then I remember that I can listen to an audio book. So I listen to another great, humane and also anarchistic mind, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, The Wave in the Mind is an anthology of her lectures and essays about writers and it is read beautifully by Christina Moore. Her first lecture is about the non-existence of women throughout much of her life. I am a man. When I was growing up, there were no women. Women are a very recent invention. When I was born, people were men. And the monologue reminds me of when I was talking to Alice Lowe some time ago on on Book Shambles with Josie Long. And she said, the problem is that people think men's stories are for everyone and stories by women are just for women. As well as being pertinent and incisive, Le Guin often makes me laugh. Hemingway was manly, the beard and the gun and the short sentences. 
There's also a delightful piece celebrating libraries where Le Guin recalls the excitement of being allowed into the ominous yet inviting adult section of the library after she'd exhausted the children's department. Taking a large biography of Lord Dunsany to the counter, she wrote that the librarian gave her a look like the customs official in Seattle when he opened her suitcase and saw a Stilton cheese. She would also read the foreign language books, even though she'd never encountered the words before. She wrote, You can read a language you don't know if you love it enough. She also wrote that only a 15-year-old can truly understand Baudelaire's Flowers of Evil. Then I look out of the window for a while, at the farms, the grain silos and the old wooden barns collapsing under the weight of their roofs. Of course, I romanticise it all. Everything becomes a frozen snapshot in time detached from the sweat, loans and foreclosures that are dotted either side of the freeway. As we approach Toronto, I see those kind of company buildings that stand alone that sprung up in the 1970s and imagine them as the location for the sort of experiments that lead to stories like David Cronenberg's Rabbit. You can't trust your mother, your best friend, the neighbour next door. One minute, they're perfectly normal. The next, rabid. Just as each tower block in my imagination in Canada becomes the location of parasitic sexual shenanigans from Shivers. Cronenberg leaves a heavy cultural imprint on my views of Toronto. Over a 4pm lunch, Brian tells me of the wonders of Michael Thomas's language courses and gives me a lesson in French grammar. We walk the short distance to the venue in the grey rain to the Roy Thompson Hall, which is also where I do the generator shows with Chris and Evan Hadfield, where I've met many fascinating minds, from people who set up body farms to the designers of prosthetic limbs for children. So they, they make prosthetic limbs. They're actually a company based in Bristol, and they can look like any arm or leg or whatever that the child wants. So rather uh, than have a limb that very specifically looks like a prosthetic limb, they can have a limb that looks like the hand of a superhero, uh, looks like Iron Man's arm, looks like Mark Hamill's uh, arm, looks like it has a little open bit, like in Empire Strikes Back when he has his hand replaced, and it suddenly turns something which can be seen as making someone an outsider into making someone a... Uh, giving them something that's, that's, that's to them and to their friends fascinating and beautiful and wonderfully strange. Chris Hadfield is also joining us as a surprise guest tonight. I've set up the Q&A with a question that will stump a particle physicist, in particular an English particle physicist, but not a Canadian hockey-loving astronaut. The question is, from the ISS, can you see how badly the Toronto Maple Leafs beat Tampa last night? The Leafs had or Leafs had a striking victory last night and Chris was there. The crowd go wild when I introduce him on, splendid in his bespoke Maple Leafs jacket. Now last but not least, I know you've got a lot on the go, so what's next for uh, Chris Hatfield? Uh, I'm planning to watch the Leafs win tonight. That's what I'm planning. That's a good plan. Well, congratulations, a great anthem tonight. Let's give it up one more time for our national hero, former commander of the International Space Station, Mr. Chris Hadfield. Thank you. This is the largest North American audience of the tour so far, and it ends with a standing ovation. So I know I can relax at the side of the stage for a while before taking my bow, because Brian's more comfortable 
when he's on stage with a standing ovation than just when they're sat applauding. Then he feels a little bit embarrassed, but he can he can bask in it a little bit more. We all go for a drink afterwards, and Chris says that he's always amazed by how much I do. So I remind him that he's been to space three times, recorded albums, written my favourite book on what it is to be in space, and also a thriller about Apollo 18. Well, I've written a few jokes and a couple of poems. He's always delightful and educational company. And if you've never read his first book, which is about the meaning of going into space and looking back on the planet Earth and how that gives you a perspective of thinking about how we need to deal with planet Earth, then you really should. Brian ends up drinking one more glass of wine than normal tonight. But our pal Steph has now arrived. She was previously meant to join us at the beginning of the tour, but unfortunately, for one day only, she had two stripes on her COVID test. So she joins us now in Toronto, and that means that though Brian has filled himself with toxins, he will work them all out with me in a drizzly park tomorrow morning. Probably boxing. Getting in the lift this morning in our Toronto hotel... I was hit by a quandary. How big does a city need to be before it's considered not the done thing to say hello or good morning when a stranger gets in the same lift as you? Somewhere like New Haven, it seems impolite not to acknowledge someone getting into the elevator. But Toronto, well, it's it's bigger and it kind of seems half and half because it's Canadian, so it's friendly. But it is a big city, and there's people there for a conference, and maybe they don't want to say hello. Uh, New York is obvious. You don't, you don't, don't do it in, in, in New York unless you notice that the people are very much uh, maybe from uh, tourists from the boonies or whatever it will be. And then you can say hello. Um, so I'm in the end, I generally still say hello, but I can see that sometimes this gives a uh, – someone will then acknowledge it with very much a kind of dismissive look and a kind of, oh, hello, this is a big city, you don't need to say hello to people, we're, we're all strangers here. Anyway, so I started with a bran muffin. That was the real beginning of the day. Uh, today, bran muffin, uh, because I thought, well, the tour bus has two toilets, so it's not too much of a risk to have a bran muffin the day before our next journey. Had we been having a car journey the next day, I probably wouldn't have taken the risk of a bran muffin in the morning. Not long after the bran muffin, now Steph is back, it means that we take the kit bag and go off looking for somewhere to punch. We travel where we think we've travelled before, but we only find very, very small patches of grass or places where people, again, might be meditating. And so finally, we find a very, very small, not even a stretch. I I, I don't think you could say it hadn't been stretched at all. It was a, a piece of grass near some swings and some slides that were unoccupied. I think if there were children there, then we wouldn't have done that. And it was directly under the freeway. And that became the inauspicious piece of grass where we would punch and we would stretch ourselves with elastic bands and I would occasionally balance precariously on one hand as I tried to do something to decrease the looseness of my abdomen. As I'm stretching a big rubber band a woman approaches me. I'm worried at first I think she's about to tell me off for using elastic exercise weapons in a children's area. You never know what local city regulations are. But actually, she was at the show last night. And as she walked by, she noticed two men with equations on their back and thought, what are the chances of that? I'm pleased to say that she had had a lovely time. Though Brian was so precariously balanced at the time, he couldn't join in the conversation. 
The equation, by the way, on the back is for the equation, by the way, on the back of our T-shirts is the one that deals with the Schwarzschild radius. So it's only a few steps away from being a celebrity gym in the making. Need to reduce your radius? Join Brian Cox, who won't have anyone kick sand in your face anymore when you become a singularity. Brian is always overjoyed when full-on exercise returns. And I'm happy too, though I do have an occasional grumble when we get into the second hour especially on a day like this when the oxygen seems to be travelling through me like marzipan through a flute. Brian returns to have his skin restorative siesta, and I make plans for some bookshop visits. Toronto has many wonderful bookshops, and my bookselling pal Jeff Towns has fond memories of the Canadian Book Fair. In fact, he even gave me a copy of An Introduction to the 21st Toronto Antiquarian Book Fair by Robertson Davis. Here is a small excerpt from An Introduction to the 21st Toronto Antiquarian Book Fair by Robertson Davis. Considering that most of my life has been occupied with reading books, reviewing books, writing books, yes, and buying books in quantities that are now becoming a domestic problem, I've known remarkably few booksellers. Consequently, my notion of them tends to be old-fashioned and romantic. I see them in terms of Anatole France's father, white-haired, crowned with a velvet skullcap, curiously learned, and probably an inveterate taker of snuff. And when I encounter the reality... I'm surprised. He's generally the one man in the bookshop who is working. Languid ladies and pallid youths lean against the walls waiting for custom, but the bookseller is in his shirt sleeves, struggling with a large and heavy box. He is the one man who may know if anything I'm asking for is in stock. He is the man with whom I can join forces to curse the GST and its begetters. One bookseller I knew, however, for at least 50 years... He was the late Roy Britnell. My father had known his father, the Albert Britnell after whom the famous shop was named. Anyway, there we are. There's a little... I will, uh, I'll give you the conclusion as well, just so... Uh, oh, it's a little other excerpt. I wish I had more opportunity to study the personal literary tastes of booksellers and their opinions on books in general. As time wore on, I began to collect old and rare books and had frequent dealing with the famous firm of Blackwell in Oxford. I made the acquaintance of Mr East, who directed their antiquarian department. There came a time when I was working on a book about books, which had been asked for by my friend Alfred Knopf, the New York publisher. The plan of the book I was writing called for some comments on pornography, of which I had a very scant knowledge. So I applied to Mr East for I knew that collections of rarities of all kinds came his way, and sometimes in Blackwell's catalogues there would be volumes described as facetia, uh, uh, I don't even know how that's said, which was bookseller's jargon in those days for dirty. Mr East looked askew, like Nell Cook in Ingoldsby's Legends. He may even have blushed, but his office was dark and I couldn't be sure. He had heard of volumes of evil import, he said, but they seldom came his way. However, he'd do what he could do. I sensed that he thought I was prevaricating about Mr Knopf and wanted books of lewd character for my own delight. But not long afterward, he let me know that he'd found something which might meet my need. It was a hand-bound copy of a poem by the late Eugene Field called When Willie Wet the Bed. I bought it and have it still, but I do not turn to it to stir my passions. What effect, I wonder, had this feeble bit of drollery had on Mr. East? 
The first bookshop I have time for in Toronto today is She Said Boom on College Street. This was, in fact, the first second-hand bookshop I ever visited in Toronto when I came over to do the Generator show eight or so years ago. I was attracted to it because it had a furious online review in which the customer huffily said, this is the kind of shop that looks like it's run by junkies. I thought, that sounds fun. It's not run by junkies, but it is beautifully curated. In the past, I've bought Douglas Coupland's book on Marshall McLuhan, a first edition of R.D. Lang's The Divided Self, uh, a book on Mojave ethnopsychiatry, psychic disturbances of an Indian tribe, and the most expensive book I've ever bought there is Seduction of the Innocent. The book that explained how comics warped the minds of young people and how Batman made people gay and eventually led to the comics code. It's also the shop that introduced me to the utter brilliance of the soft machine when their second album was playing loudly during a winter browse. Today I buy The Eternal Ones of the Dream, Myth and Ritual, Dreams and Fantasies, their role in the lives of primitive man, and also a very nice copy of the selected non-fiction of Borges, which includes The Art of Verbal Abuse, The Duration of Hell, and The Doctrine of Cycles. The number of all the atoms that compose the world is immense but finite, and as such only capable of a finite, though also immense, number of permutations. In an infinite stretch of time, the number of possible permutations must be run through, and the universe has to repeat itself. Once again, you will be born from a belly. That's the kind of paragraph that grabs me. I also buy a fine copy of Mark Vonnegut's The Eden Express, his account of his own schizophrenia. The dedications include To My Father, without whom I wouldn't have known how to fight. I'm very hopeful that I'll make it to that museum and library in Indianapolis in memory of his father, but it might be a close-run thing, as it is on a Sunday and we need to get there by bus. Further back down College Street, I visit one of my favourite comic shops. Don't tell Gosh in London, though they are also one of my favourites. It's called The Beguiling, and it's filled with both the mainstream and the independent, plenty of zines and beautiful eccentricities. I remember being hugely tempted by an enormous version of Charles Burns's masterpiece Black Hole a few visits ago, but in the end I may do with a stack of Steve Bissett's Taboo magazine, where From Hell by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell was first serialised. And also I got a copy of D.R. and Quinch. On this occasion I decide to not even risk looking at the books as my luggage is beginning to chomp at the buckles and zips. Instead, I buy a copy of an annual magazine highlighting Canadian comic art and also four issues of Broken Pencil, which I've never heard of before. It's a magazine of zine culture and the independent arts. I chose the UFO edition, in which I will later learn about the Swamp Gas Journal, and I also end up reading a great essay on post-cook culture, how the conspiracy theory went mainstream. I also got issues on hate zines, body hacking and indigenous artists fighting against the extraction of resources. That will definitely keep me going to Pittsburgh. I draw breath in the Lillian H. Smith Library. A fine arch guarded by griffins leads to the Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation and Fantasy and the Osborne Collection of Early Children's Books. The Merrill display today is heavily Marvel. I have to admit that I remain suspicious of the acclaim for Stan Lee, while at the same time it appears there was a less than respectful treatment of Jack Kirby and then of Jack Kirby's widow. 
The children's collection has some outstanding pieces, including an illustration of The Little Mermaid by Jenny Harbour from an early 20th century edition, and there's a little Maurice Sendak from his tale Hector Protector, the story of a feisty young boy who gets into an altercation between two blackbirds and a hungry sea monster. Sadly, this leaves no time for the monkey's paw, a fascinating shop filled with cultish books and arcane printed paraphernalia, which also has the bibliomat. Pop a token into the magic machine and a mystery book will pop out with a ping. They told me the first time that I went there that it was the addition of the ping that really increased the users of the bibliomat. You'll just in the end get one of the books that they're kind of trying to get rid of that's not really worth very much, but that's not the point. The point is the fun of it all. And the ping element adds a lot of fun. Toronto is another good gig tonight and Canada has been excessively welcoming. A photographer has been capturing fragments of Brian's smiling soul throughout tonight's show and wants to get a couple of shots of him by his tour bunk. Unfortunately, this takes just long enough for the post-baseball and post-hockey crowd to gridlock the city. Bad news also for the Leafs. Tampa won this time, 5-3. My Toronto book that I'm reading at the moment is Michael Redhill's Bellevue Square. I'm gripped from the first sentence. My doppelganger problems began one afternoon in early April. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Taking the Universe Around the World. And as usual, thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton, and everyone who makes this show possible by supporting us via Patreon. So you can just go, if you don't support us via Patreon, go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. And the tour continues. We are going to be in Edmonton, and we are going to be in Calgary, and we're going to be in Vancouver, and Seattle, and Portland, and on, and on, and on. So if you go to Brian live uh, you will find all of our tour dates but thank you very much please support us for our patreon see you next time this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network